Welcome to Lymphoma Myeloma 2018, an international conference on hematologic malignancy here in New York City. Uh, I'm Dr. Morton Coleman, chair of the conference, and with me today is Dr. Richard Furman, who is the chair of the CLL section of the conference. Dr. Furman, welcome. Thank you. We had an exciting day today on, on CLL as the subject. Um, tell me, one of the exciting things is the use of these new novel agents. How do you sequence these agents in your practice? Well, I think it's interesting that, you know, we really don't have much data that sequence matters. And I think one of the big questions is really going to be, or what really should be the most important question driving treatment choice is sort of which treatment's best suited to the patient. You know, a large number of patients will actually have very deep and prolonged remissions on these agents and may not need subsequent therapy. So I always believe in putting our best foot forward first and um, not saving agents for later on. And I think that's a mistake that physicians sometimes make. But I really let the patient's tolerabilities guide which choice I'm going to use first and move down, if I need to, to subsequent lines of therapy. Well, uh, all of what you say is true, but let's presume that the patient can, in fact, tolerate several drugs at one time. Where do you think combinations of novel agents uh, will be going, as opposed to starting off with a single agent and sequencing another agent thereafter? Well, we have very good data for a large number of patients who are watched and waited and then initiate therapy with BTK inhibitor therapy, you know, ibrutinib or calibrutinib, that they'll do extraordinarily well on just single-agent therapy, and we will have seven-and-a-half-year data on ibrutinib coming up shortly. So that really is all many of those patients will need for therapy. Where I think the combination therapy is really going to be most helpful will be in two regards. One will be for those patients who aren't going to have long-term and deep remissions on single-agent BTK inhibition. And those are patients who would do very well either because they have pre-existing BTK mutations or because they have a risk of developing Richter's having the addition of venatoclax, which working synergistically with the BTK inhibitor will actually have very deep um, and very rapid responses. Now, interestingly, even in those patients who will do well long-term on single-agent BTK inhibitors, there certainly is an advantage to shortening the duration of therapy. And that's another advantage offered by the combinations, totally separate from whether or not it's actually necessary from a PFS perspective. Minimal residual disease uh, has certainly come to the fore, certainly in experimental programs. What is your feeling about the achievement of minimal residual disease? Do you, do you think it's necessary, or do you think it's a goal that we should try to achieve in the future in terms of trying to ultimately cure CLL? We do know that the novel agents usually do not get a complete remission, that they do very well with partial remissions. Uh, but uh, what about the achievement of MRD? Do you think that is a, a, a worthy goal to seek? Well, I do think MRD is a very worthy goal. It's really the, the holy grail. The thing that's most important is you don't want to sacrifice, you know, in terms of what you do to achieve MRD negativity. So the important thing is, you know, what are you adding on to enhance MRD negativity? Is it really costing us anything? And when you talk about taking a patient on long-term ibrutinib who's having freedom from progression, 
Now, that's really all that matters to the patient. And is there any advantage to being seven and a half years on ibrutinib and not having achieved MRD versus achieving MRD um, at 12 months with venetoclax and then wondering how are you going to do seven and a half years from now? So I definitely believe that PFS is what matters most to the patients, but from a perspective of looking at novel strategies for actually discontinuation of therapy, MRD really affords us a great option or a great target in terms of the modeling that's been done, really suggesting that doubling the time it takes to get from treatment initiation to MRD might actually predict time it takes to get down to 10 to the minus 8, which might be equivalent of cure. And I think this is a strategy that we're using in a lot of our approaches now, be it with the Murano trial, which had two years of uh, venetoclax plus rituximab, or whether or not with the Captivate trial, which is looking at really 12 months of combination therapy of ibrutinib plus venetoclax. There are some who say that minimal residual disease is really nothing more than a highfalutin prognostic factor that those patients in whom you can achieve minimal residual disease are those who would inherently do better to begin with, and that it need not be uh, a goal of what we want to obtain. How do you feel about that? Uh, so I think, you know, MRD is what I call a post-treatment prognostic marker, which is really of no value in terms of deciding, you know, what we should be doing for patients, and I think that's a very important caveat. Whenever we talk about prognostic markers, you know, those that really don't tell us what we need to know or to factor into treatment decisions beforehand are really meaningless. <clears throat> but with regard to, and for chemotherapy, MRD is very much just an assessment of the sensitivity of the disease to the treatment. But with novel agents, you know, MRD serves much more than a prognostic marker. It serves as an endpoint, and it does factor into our treatment decision. So it allows us to know, or at least the mathematically, mathematical modeling suggests, that the time it takes to get to MRD, doubling that will enable us to get to what might be a 10 to the minus 8 or a cure. And so it does provide us with a endpoint for our treatment. So there it's not just serving as a prognostic marker, but it's really beginning to serve as an important factor for determining treatment duration. With all the good news about the novel agents, what role do you think is, remains for using chemotherapy, such as uh, fludarabine and cytoxin, in combination with rituxan? So I really think there's very limited role for chemotherapy. Fludarabine, cytoxin, rituxan, bendamustine rituxan, or uh, fludarabine cyclophosphamide by itself. I really think you know chemotherapy, while very effective, you know people always have to remember that there are very much long-term toxicities associated with these that we've never been able to see because patients weren't living long enough. Now that we have patients who might have very durable remissions after chemotherapy being once again rescued with you know, BCR antagonists, I'm concerned that we might start seeing things like an increase in um, myodysplasia and secondary AML due to the chemotherapy use maybe not at seven and a half to 10 years, but maybe at 10 to 20 years. And we do have an incidence of clonal hematopoiesis in the general population that predicts for development of MDS and AML in the 70-year-olds. Um, no one's ever showed me any data that we don't actually create clonal hematopoiesis in um, chemotherapy-treated patients at an earlier point in time. So I do worry, especially in those fit young 50-year-olds, um, that by the time they get to 70, we're going to start seeing a lot of alarming 
toxicities. Yes, but uh, there are some who contend in that young, fit CLL patient who requires therapy that if he takes, let's say, FCR, which is the gold standard, and he takes it for a finite period of time, five months, six months, uh, and maybe even with less therapy at three months if he's MRD, uh, that many of these patients go into plateau at 40, uh, 40 to 60 percent of overall patients and they don't need treatment again. They can just sit and lead a regular life without having to be on continuous therapy. How do you respond to that challenge? So I think it's important to remember that first off the population of patients who are on the plateau are mostly about three-quarters of them are going to be the mutated immunoglobulin gene patients. So those are patients who would do probably very well with ibrutinib. And the truth is the seven and a half year data for ibrutinib in those patients and the patient population overall is actually better than what it is for fludarabine-based chemotherapy. So while we can definitely say that there's continuous therapy necessary with ibrutinib, the long-term PFS is actually better. But if you are talking about the advantage of being off therapy, that's good and fine, but you know, there's still, you know, 25% of patients who are mutated are going to progress and doing, you know, people do quite poorly after progressing on fludarabine-based chemotherapy. Likewise, you know, if you're unmutated, there's a continuous rate of progression in those patients as well. So patients can't choose which curve they're on, and they can't choose where in the curve they are. And so, you know, it's rolling the dice, and it's a role that I think we have to be very conscious of because we don't know where people are going to end up. The one other thing that I think, and this is very important, and this I think relates particularly to sequencing, you know, the real the few patients who run into trouble with BTK inhibitor therapy are those who actually develop 17P deletions. And we know that the incidence of 17P deletion is about 3 to 7% of diagnosis and rises to 35 to 40% by the time you start looking at relapse refractory disease. And in fact, in the ibrutinib and idelisib pivotal studies, it was as high as 45%. So you all of a sudden are you know, looking at chemotherapy which increases the risk of 17P or increases the incidence of 17P really as being the one thing that might um, sort of hurt the long-term chances of the patients benefiting from BTK inhibitor therapy. So if I read you correctly, you're talking about clonal evolution, that what you're doing with ibrutinib is that you're sort of clearing out the very sensitive cells allowing the emergence of a more resistant clone. It was my understanding, however, that ibrutinib is supposed to be effective for most patients with 17P. How do, how do you resolve the uh, issue of uh, 17P supposedly being sensitive but yet evolving as a potential resistant uh, abnormality with long-term ibrutinib therapy? So it's important to recognize that the, the rate of evolution is certainly not 100%. The relapse refractory 17P curve has about 26% progression-free survival at five years. The treatment-naive data, which is actually probably best generated from the NIH study, shows a two-year freedom from progression of about 77%. So while it's not a perfect curve, it's certainly far better than what we've seen with anything else. I do believe that there are going to be patients who have pre-existing uh, clones that either might harbor a BTK mutation that makes them likely to progress in ibrutinib or changes that may be starting that would lead to a Richter's transformation also enabling them to progress in ibrutinib. 
And I think a lot of those changes aren't necessarily due to the BTK exposure, inhibitor exposure, but really are due to genomic instability that results from the 17P deletion. And I do think there are very particular strategies that we're now testing, like combination of ibrutinib-venatoclax or early initiation of therapy in these high-risk patients that may abrogate those issues and make that, you know, that survival curve or that PFS curve rise from 77% to 100%. Since we're talking about novel agents, uh, we have to really address the issue is that people, patients are on them for extended periods of time. And uh, we need to really address the issue of toxicity. Uh, how toxic are these agents? Can patients stay on them for a sustained period? So I do believe patients can really stay on them for a sustained period of time. We actually have good data now that the immune system actually heals and that we see fewer infections in patients the longer they're on ibrutinib and that the data would suggest that they have fewer infections year three compared to year one and fewer infections year five compared to year one, really suggesting that by treating the CLL and resolving the the interaction with the excessive amount of B cells without using immunoblading therapy really does enable patients to have fewer infections. With regard to the other toxicities, I sort of look at it as patients really declare themselves primarily early. Either they tolerate it well and they're going to do well, or they have toxicities that are going to preclude long-term use of these agents. And by two years, most of the people who aren't going to be able to enjoy long-term therapy are off. And those people who are on beyond two years, there's really a very, very low rate of drop-off beyond that point in time. I do think there are a lot of tricks that enable people to actually be able to tolerate the medication better. And once we get a little bit better at those, we'll actually see um, an increase in the number of people who are able to stay on therapy. How about specifically addressing the problems with bleeding and atrial fibrillation uh, with regard to abrutinib therapy? So it's interesting. The, um, you know, one of the things that's important whenever we talk about um, atrial fibrillation is really what are the risk factors and can we predict who are those patients? So it looks like it's about 10% overall and that the patients who are going to develop atrial fibrillation do it by year two. So that really suggests to me that it's the underlying biology of the heart that's going to determine who develops AFib and who isn't. And so while we say it's 10% overall, I believe we can have a population of patients where it might be 20% or 50% and a population of patients who it's going to be 0% in. So as we get more data, we'll be able to really tease out who are the patients that aren't going to run into issues and really could use ibrutinib safely. Um, we don't have data yet that a calibrutinib is a good alternative, um, but we do have a lot of other agents that don't have an impact upon um, atrial fibrillation risk as a treatment that we'll be able to use in those patients who are at risk of developing atrial fibrillation. I also think there are a lot of methods that we can use to help diminish the risk, whether it be prophylactic beta blockade or other things that might actually enable people to be on these therapies if it's for a short duration of time. If we're talking about a year of combination of brutinum venatoclax, then that's something where if we were to also just use some medical therapy to keep patients in normal sinus for that year, I think in the long run, patients will do much, much better. I wouldn't obviously advocate additional therapy to prevent a toxicity if we could avoid the toxicity to start with by not putting the patient on the drug, 
But at this point in time, BTK inhibitor therapy is our best option for treating our patients. As you know, we've been discussing mostly BTK inhibition, and we just talked about venetoclax. Where do you see a role for PI3 kinase inhibitors? So it's interesting. I think PI3 kinase inhibitors are, in the short term, extremely well tolerated. I do think that you know, when we start talking about combination of therapies, like with venetoclax, PI3 kinase inhibitors really offer a great opportunity because patients could be on them for a year, which is short enough that they won't develop the autoimmune um, sequelae, and they, it's short enough that they won't have to worry about progressive disease, and they will be able to get their very, very deep responses due to synergy between the PI3 kinase inhibitors and venetoclax. So I think that's really one of the good options. Um, otherwise, I think there's some interesting data that's very early that it looks like CART T cells, when you uh, collect the CART T cells on PI3 kinase inhibitor therapy, you actually probably get a better yield and a better efficacy of the CAR T cells themselves. So there may be a role for using PI3 kinase inhibitors in that capacity as well. Do you see any role for BTK's use in CAR T therapy? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the important aspects of, BT, of CAR T cells and one of the important ways of improving tolerability as well as efficacy is by having it done with the disease burden minimized. So definitely pre-treatment with the BTK inhibitor to get someone down to minimal disease. Also enabling um, the CAR T cells to sort of take hold without the CLL growing back is important as well. Um, but with regard specifically the CAR T cells, I'm sorry, with the BTK inhibitors making the CAR T cells more efficacious, I think that's a lot of in vitro data yet that we haven't yet um, generated any clinical data to support. Uh CAR-T therapy seems to have come to the fore very recently uh, and seems to be the hottest, latest thing for CLL. Where do you see CAR-T therapy's role in CLL? Do you ever foresee it as being an upfront type therapy? Do you think it'll always serve as a salvage therapy? Where do you think we're going to be going with CAR-T? It's certainly toxic to use. Uh, I presume that toxicity will one day be ameliorated uh, with new discoveries, but where right today do you see CAR-T therapy? So I'm really not that rosy on CAR-T therapy. I think in CLL, the response rates are 30%, so they're significantly lower than what we see with a lot of our other agents, and the tolerability or the toxicities are much greater, and the tolerability much less. So I do think it has a, a role um, in patients who've progressed on multiple lines of therapy, including chemotherapy, including um, our novel agents. But I think it currently needs to be better investigated and to better understand how we can use it. My belief in how it should be used at this point in time, which still needs to be proven, um, would be in two ways. One is to be as maybe a consolidative therapy. If we were to do CAR T cells in someone who's already achieved you know, a very good response, this could either be an MRD-positive response of venetoclax, which I do think... You know, if you're not MRD negative by the end of um, 18 to 24 months, you're likely going to progress in the not-too-distant future. Or if it's to take that patient who's been ibrutinib for two years and get them off ibrutinib, you know, CAR T cells could definitely do that type of consolidative um, or have a place in consolidation. You know, the CAR T cells are very well tolerated with that amount of disease burden, and it really does sort of afford the option to sort of mop up what's there. 
The other place I see CAR T cells being very important is actually with Richter's transformations. And what I'd like to see us do is collect patients, you know, at diagnosis, undergo uh, significant amounts of debulking chemotherapy, and then using CAR T cells to really consolidate them. That, I think, is probably our best strategy for what really are our toughest patients to treat and the greatest unmet medical need that we have in CLL right now. Do you see any role for allogeneic transplantation in CLL? Very limitedly. So I think allogeneic transplant is something that um, I offer to all my patients who have had a Richter's transformation, and I'm concerned that the next Richter's, we might not be able to get them back into remission. I also offer it in my patients who um, are young and have 17P deleted disease. Um, but by and large, I think the most important class of patients who it's going to be of use in are those who have sort of a, an aplastic anemia, which we see now in CLL patients that were able to clear the marrows. So 10 years ago, we had a large number of patients dying with pancytopenia marrows full of CLL. You know, we're starting to see a number of patients who will have pancytopenia, but now empty marrows. And it's because we've been, by using venatoclax, ibrutinib, and whatnot, we've been able to clear out the marrows. And unfortunately, patients with aplastic anemia uh, really seem to have a very poor prognosis. So those are patients who I'm very quick to send for allogeneic transplant. Uh, but in terms of a relatively young, fit patient who has a 17P abnormality uh, with CLL, which requires therapy, where would you place CAR-T vis-a-vis allogeneic transplant? So I really would put CAR T cell before alginate transplant. You know, the idea is that the CAR T cell tolerability is really so much greater. And my hope is with some additional years of study, CAR T cell really could be much more effective. And I think that, you know, that's just something that we need more time with right now. So I do think using the CAR T cells to maybe kick the can down the road is a viable strategy. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Furman, for your most interesting observations. This is Dr. Morton Coleman wishing you good day from Lymphoma Myeloma 2018.